I guess that I have officially lived in San Francisco for over seven years when I start my sermon by quoting my yoga teacher. But I take a Friday morning yoga class and my teacher, Alyssa, is a very serious, a very serious practitioner. She really studies yoga as a spiritual practice. She didn't choose it because her knees hurt from running or the LSAT was harder than she thought it was going to be. She really, she really thinks of it in a very deep way. She knows all the names of the moves and she tries to cultivate something other than a workout. She really wants to create a holistic experience for her students. And in the last few minutes of class, she often picks something from the Vedas, explains its meaning in English, and then chants it in Sanskrit, rhythmically, over and over again. So I'll be lying in Sarvasana, trying to quiet my mind, not judge the thoughts and feelings that arise, but I keep thinking, is this what it's like for the congregation when I am leading services? A genuine, eager, relatively well-versed leader chanting in an exotic foreign language while I try to not be distracted. <laughs> does that describe, I'm not, does that describe what you've experienced? I think it really begs a deeper question, one that really has come out of eight years of being here, which is why do we pray in Hebrew? How do we relate to God and our heritage in a language that most of us do not understand? When we just opened up the Amidah chanting, Adonai sefatai tiftach ufiya God open up my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. What are we asking for? How are the words supposed to come when we don't know the language? Raise your hand, this is a brief, this is a brief thing. Raise your hand if you do not understand the majority of the Hebrew that we said in the last 30 minutes. It's more people than you think. And our community's lack of Hebrew literacy is not a new thing. While we tend to romanticize the past, most Jews over the last 2,000 years have not had great Hebrew. In fact, we probably as a community have better Hebrew today in the 21st century around the globe than we ever had as a Jewish diaspora. In the past, we spoke Aramaic, Latin, Greek, Farsi, Arabic, German, rather than Lashon Kodesh, than Lashon Kodesh, the holy tongue. The Mishnah teaches in Sota, in Sota 7.1, the following are said in any language, the declaration of tithes, the recitation of the Shema, the Amidah, the blessing after a meal, the oath of testimony, and the oath of a deposit. That list is the most essential. They are the most essential prayers in our tradition, theologically, ritually, and practically. And therefore, you're supposed to do them in one's lingua franca. No one should declare God as one or offer testimony in a trial without understanding what they are saying. One of the early reform movement's greatest innovations, or abominations, depending on who you asked at the time, was introducing a German and later English sermon, and ultimately an English prayer book to congregations. 
This culminated in the American Union Prayer Book, the UPB, which some may remember. We used it in this congregation for many generations. It was released in 1895 and revised in 1918 and 1940. It selected a few key prayers in Hebrew, but its primary focus was formal English. The prayer book that you hold tonight, the Mishkan Tefillah, has more Hebrew than Reformed Jews have seen in generations. It represents the pendulum swinging back towards traditional liturgy and towards our sacred language. If you could go back in time, 10, 20, 30 years, and attend Friday night services in this sanctuary, and some of you in the sanctuary could actually access those memories, you were here 10, 20, 30 years ago, you would hear more and more Hebrew with each decade. A bat mitzvah student recently looked up at me in the middle of a study session, it's not you, it's not you, and said with honest curiosity and a lot of frustration, why do I need to learn all of this in Hebrew? I told her that it was one of the most important questions she could ask of herself and her community during this process, and I wondered how she would answer the question. And her own answers were telling. She said, one, that her cousins in South Africa had to do their bar mitzvah in Hebrew. So she had to, too, and she felt that it connected her to her family. And two, she knew that the Torah was given to us in Hebrew, that that's the original language. And so she felt that it connected her to her history and her tradition. Then I asked her, given all of that, how would she feel if I let her sing the entire Torah portion in English at her bat mitzvah? And she made a face and said, no, that would feel really weird. It is better for them to hear it in Hebrew because they won't know what it means when I'm chanting it. <laughs> German philosopher Franz Rosenzweig remarked that the uncomprehended Hebrew gives him more than the finest translation. Jewish prayer means praying in Hebrew. The power of Hebrew is what that bat mitzvah student knew instinctively. It does link us to Jews around the world, and it does root us in our history and our texts. And part of the power is also the otherness of it. The fact that we don't use it every day, yet it feels familiar. There is enough cognitive distance yet emotional pull to allow us to really meditate on Hebrew. In this week's Torah portion, Vayera in Exodus, God charges Moses with the mission to go back to Egypt and to free the Israelites from slavery. But Moses' first reaction is, The Israelites would not listen to me. Shema lishmoa. How then should Pharaoh heed me, a man of impeded speech? Literally, aral sefataim, just like we said, Adonai, sefatai tiftach, open up my lips. He's saying, I literally, I have a problem. I have a problem with my lips. I'm of impeded speech. But God reassures Moses that his brother Aaron would be with him as a partner. He 
You shall repeat all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh and let the Israelites depart from this land. Even our greatest prophet Moses worried about not being able to speak, of not knowing the right words. Some commentators say that he had a speech impediment, maybe a lisp. Others say that he had a fear of public speaking that was so deep, he never came back from the wilderness. Still others say that alone before Pharaoh, he lacked the courage to get the words out. But with his brother by his side, with a partner, with a translator, he could do it. Some of us grew up fluent in Hebrew. Others learned the minimum to get by for our bar mitzvah. And many others saw the Aleph bed only for the first time as adults. For some, this may be the first Shabbat service you've ever been here, and it feels like Latin at a mass. We all struggle in different ways with Hebrew and with prayer. Sometimes we think it's too much. Sometimes we think it's not enough. Trust me, I hear it all from you. Whether native Israeli or a reform rabbi or a recent convert, we all have moments of doubt like Moses. How will we have the words? How will we open our lips to say what we need to say to each other, to ourselves, and to God? I think this week's Torah portion teaches us that there is no perfect answer, that I don't want all of you to go home and become fluent in Hebrew, nor do I want all of our B'nai Mitzvah students to give up. But I do think that in all of our moments where we feel that we're impeded of speech, that we let Hebrew keep us from being fully present in our prayer and as part of this community, that we need to find the errands, the partners, the translators, the teachers, to help us gain the courage to speak truth before great power, both power we're in awe of and power we're desperate to connect to. On this Shabbat, I pray that we take the lessons of our tradition the lessons from our youth, that we take the words of Torah to help us examine our relationship to Hebrew and thereby the greater Jewish experience of our lives. Shabbat Shalom.